You know, I wish that you did call me bishop. It's easier to spell than superintendent. Um, welcome. Hello. Hello. Hi. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good for me to be in this kind of environment. I know there's a lot of college students in the room, and I really appreciate that. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that as I uh, just tell you more about me and my family. But as uh, Jerry said, we live in Stevens Point. We've lived there the last 36 years. We have raised uh, three children there. Um, I grew up moving every year as a kid. My dad was in construction and actually built churches. And it takes anywhere from 6 to 12 months to build a church. And he did that throughout the upper Midwest. And so I grew up moving every 6 to 12 months. I was always the new kid in school. But my kids have all lived in Stevens Point and been raised there and, and things. And they're grown now. Uh, Joan and I kind of babysit now for them quite often as we have nine grandchildren. But my, our oldest is uh, Jared. He's an Army captain. He has spent two years in Iraq and is now with the National Guard full-time. He just recently moved back to the Stevens Point area, so we see him and his wife and his four kids quite, quite often. Our oldest daughter lives in the Lake Geneva area, Elkhorn. She has three boys, nine, seven, and four, and they're very busy, and we love being with them as often as we can, and they're very active in their church and actually are very active in a ministry in Haiti and have spent quite a bit of time in Haiti, and I was able to join them about a year and a half ago and, and go to Haiti with them and see what they're doing in, in a kind of a mission field down there. And our youngest daughter uh, lives now in Appleton. She actually went to school here at Eau Claire for two years, then she got married and finished her college education at Boyce College in Louisville. And uh, her and her husband both graduated from there then with degrees, he in uh, youth ministry and she in Christian counseling. And they're now doing church planting, somewhat similar to what Jerry and Sue have done here. They're doing that in Appleton, Wisconsin. And I believe they're going to be here in a couple weeks, something like that. Jed's going to be, uh, be joining you. And they have two children that they have adopted uh, one from the inner city of Chicago and one from uh, Madison area. So that's a little bit about me, other than the fact that I've been married happily for 37 years to Joan. Um, she would like to be here, but she is babysitting our six-month-old granddaughter. And I remember, I think she got up about 1.30 with her in the morning. I just heard it out of one ear as she did that. Um, she was feeding uh, Trinity when I left this morning. And during that time, I did a career in insurance. So my background is I spent 35 years in the insurance industry before I retired. But as Jerry mentioned, kind of grew up as a Christian in the church and got active in the church, especially when we moved to Stevens Point because there was a new church plant happening there. It was about 60 people and 60 college students. When I say people, I mean from the community, living there, and then 60 college students. So it was a mixed, somewhat maybe like you have here, 
that was good for Jonah and I. We dived into the church, got very involved. By the third week, I was teaching the, adult, uh, the high school Sunday school class. Not sure exactly how that happened that quick, but within a year, I was elected to the elder board, which is an oxymoron because I was way too young to be an elder. I just, you know, I think I was 25, 26 years old, and that's not something I normally would recommend. But we dived into church life. Um, and God had given us some good roots even prior to that. And that was through our college years. Joan and I both became Christians uh, during our college experience at River Falls through the ministry of the Navigators. Uh, we, I spent about five years around the Navigators getting uh, discipled and trained prior to uh, moving to Stevens Point. And our daughter, when she was here for two years at Eau Claire, she had kind of, she played both worlds, so to speak. She went to a Navigator Bible study, but went to the large group crew. Now, I don't know, was, I, was that still legal? Can you still do that? You know, I know, so she was playing both sides of the fence there a little bit. Um, what I want to talk to you about today is about the priority of God's word. Jerry, I know, has been preaching through what what he refers to as Christianity 101. And part of that, and he's referred to it, I want to expand on it maybe a little bit more in my way, and that is the priority of God's word in the life of the Christian. Part of why I want to spend time talking about that is because every survey done, this has been proven or not proven, but repeated in many, many surveys of believers that very few of us, less than half of us, spend regular time in God's Word. The largest study of that was done by a large church in Chicago. They've now surveyed over a thousand churches and close to a half a million believers. And they divided people into three categories, and it's kind of random how you do that, per se. They chose three And they had a measure for each based on kind of maturity levels, and that's always kind of open to interpretation. But they had those growing in Christ, which were younger believers. They had close to Christ, were people that had been maturing for some time and growing. And then they had Christ-centered, the most mature of their categories. And of those three categories... 10 to 15% of the younger believers growing in Christ spent regular time in God's Word. And that would be expected, probably. They were new to the faith, new to the whole journey. The middle category spent about 25%, or 25% of those spent regular time in God's Word. But what really kind of broke my heart when I read all these surveys, and it's been repeated time and time again, like I mentioned, as even of the most mature category of Christians, according to their survey, only about 45 percent, 45 to 50 percent, spent regular time in God's Word. Now, our church in, in Stevens Point, Plover area, just probably like all churches, think, "Well, we're better than average." You know, w- you know, we're us. <laughs> so we did the survey. At that time. I forget the size of the church, but we surveyed 435 people, took the survey. And we were better, about that much better. 52% said they spent regular time in God's Word. And that revolutionized us 
and other churches as well as to the priority we need to put on God's word because we're trying to change that. And I'd like to tell you later, in, in, as I kind of wrap up here, my journey in that process and how God has changed my life through regular time in his word. So I want to talk about the priority of God's word. But to do that, I'd ask you to pull out your little out of your program. Jerry and I were kidding about it being a scroll or a bulletin or whatever. There is a, uh, that's not it. That's your connection card. There's a sheet in here for sermon notes. Now, I encourage taking sermon notes. I try to do it when I'm uh, listening. And the reason being is it does help us to remember. Experts tell us that tomorrow, if I speak here for an hour and a half today, is that, is that right? I always like it when it's only one service because there's really no end. You know, you don't, you're not waiting in, you know, there's no second service that you've got to get ready for. When my 35 minutes is done and I'll, I'm watching the clock in the back of the room, every time you come up here to speak, you always find out where the clock is. There's a few other things you've got to do too, but you just find that. If I speak for 35 minutes today, tomorrow you'll remember less than two minutes of what I said. A week from now, experts tell us, you'll remember less than 30 seconds. You might remember I was here. You might remember I talked something about God's Word. That's why the value of taking sermon notes. And besides that, it looks really spiritual when you do it. I mean, it just really does. It just does. I mean, there's Susie over there. There's Joe over there. He's taking notes. Wow, God's really working in his life. You may be doing your shopping list. I don't know. but, But I would encourage you to do that, okay? And I'll try to follow along. I was mentioning to Jerry this morning as I got here that about 5 o'clock this morning I changed some of the things I was going to say. So it may or may not follow the notes. But the purpose of God's Word, if God's Word should be a priority, we need to back up a little bit and say, well, what's it about? What's the purpose of it? And the purpose of God's Word, I believe, is to reveal the purposes of God. It reveals that He desires to be glorified and praised by his redeemed people. That's his purpose. That's his intent. To be glorified and worshipped by a people in relationship with him, a relationship based on grace and faith. Grace expressed in the person of Jesus Christ and accepting by faith that his life and death and resurrection paid the penalty for my rebellion. And it's on that basis and only on that basis that I'm reconciled to him and have a relationship with him. I am redeemed. I'm bought back from my rebellion and lostness. But God is a spirit, isn't he? So how does he do that? How does he reveal his purposes, his intentions, his character to us? And the theologians of the world will tell us he does that in three primary ways. One is through creation. And we'll look at a passage in a minute that might reveal some of that. Secondly, through his word, through inspiring people to write, to record, and to repeat what he has done and what he has said. 
to reveal his nature, his workings, and his intentions. So through creation, through his word, and finally and foremost, through the person of Jesus Christ, whom God sent in the flesh to become man, again, to pay that penalty for our sin on the cross, to redeem us for a people who will respond to him in faith and accept his grace. It's interesting, you can think of it this way. God created man, he speaks to man, and he became a man for us. He created man, speaks to man, and became a man. Now what I'd like us to do, if that is the purposes of his word, to look and narrow it in a little bit closer and say, well, what is, what is that in the life of the believer? God's word allows us to know him, to see his character and grace through the words that have been uh, preserved for us, inspired by him and preserved over the ages, whether those words be printed or digital. It's interesting because I'll be in a church now and I'll hold up the book and say, we need to be in this book. And people are there with their iPad going, what book? (laughs) Even digitally, he speaks. For us to grow in our relationship with him, to be changed in his character by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uses his word as a tool. But more than anything else, for me and I think for a lot of believers, God's word almost creates a place where we can go and meet God. When Jesus chose his 12 disciples, he said he chose 12 to be with him, to be in a close, intimate relationship with him. And we do that through his word and prayer. It's that place where we come and have a dialogue with God. So what i like to do is look at three psalms, and we're going to camp in Psalm 119. But this little formula that's on your sermon notes is 1 plus 19 equals 119. Well, don't add those together, but just put them together side by side. For Psalm 1, Psalm 19, and Psalm 119 are three psalms that really focus on God's Word. Psalm 1 says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor nor sits in the seats of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by the streams of water that yields his fruit in season and prospers in all that he does. Psalm 1. Psalms start with the praising of God's word. Psalm 19 is very interesting because the first six verses really talk about creation and God speaking through creation and revealing himself in creation like we mentioned before. But then verses 7, 8, and 9 of Psalm 19 It's almost a summary of what we're going to see in Psalm 119. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, 
and, and it continues on. And then it says, in summary, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Psalm 119, or excuse me, 19. But let's camp for a few minutes in Psalm 119. Now, this is one of the shorter chapters in the Bible. Some of you are chuckling. Why are you chuckling? Because you know what? It's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses. If I take two minutes to expound on each verse, we'll be here for six and a half hours. Are you ready? Are you ready to skip lunch? But probably, probably I would lose you about kickoff time, right? <laughs> the interesting thing about Psalm 119, not only of its content, which is amazing, but it's also its structure. It is a, a masterpiece of Hebrew poetry. Now, I'm not a Hebrew scholar by any means, and I doubt if we have one in the room, per se. But we can all, I think, appreciate some things as we look at this. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters in it. The English alphabet has 26. The Hebrew alphabet has 22. What we find in Psalm 119, there are 22 stanzas. And within each stanza of eight verses, the alphabet, uh, the letter of the alphabet is used to start all eight verses in each of the 22 stanzas. So example being, the first stanza of eight verses in the English would be that all eight verses start with the letter A. The word used to start each verse starts with the letter A. You go to the second stanza, which would be verses 9 through 16 then, is the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, or in our English alphabet, would be B. And every verse starts with the letter B. And it does that throughout. Now, you find that also in Psalm 25, where Psalm 25 is just 22 verses, and each verse starts with through the, English, or the Hebrew alphabet. The other part of this because it focuses on God's word, in each verse, there is a word for God's word. And there's eight different Hebrew words that are used to describe God's word. And those, we tra translate those into the English as God's word, law, commands, promises, precepts, decrees, judgments, testimonies, rules, ordinances, different words that we use in English. There's eight of them in the Hebrew, and they're repeated in each stanza through the eight of the first stanza and then again in the stanzas through. So it's a wonderful acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet to be sung. It's poetry to be sung and was often. 
There's a lot we could say about it. A lot of theologians have gone on to explain that in great detail. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, English preacher, in his commentary on the Psalms, spent nearly 200 pages just on Psalm 119, explaining it and expounding on it. Let me summarize it for you in three major truths that I think are themes, maybe a better word. One is the acknowledgement of God's truth. The acknowledgement of God's truth. There's one verse that says, the sum of God's word is truth. Verse 160. So the first theme is acknowledgement of God's truth. The second one is is a prayer for understanding and steadfastness. A prayer for understanding and steadfastness. The writer is praying to God saying, give me understanding of your word and make me steadfast in it. That prayer you see throughout. The third theme, the expression of his devotion and commitment. Expression of devotion and commitment to the word. The writer is experiencing God through his word, through his law, through his commandments. And he did this in the midst of great affliction and persecution. Every stanza refers to the persecution and affliction that the writer was going through and the comfort he found in God's word. There are some amazing verses about where he talks about his affliction. He says, before I was afflicted, in verse 67, it says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. Verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. And I know, O Lord, it says in verse 75, that thy judgments are right, and in, in thy faithfulness you afflicted me. And then he says in verse 50, he says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that thy promises give me life. Now that's a really profound reaction to affliction and persecution and trials. Really profound that God in his faithfulness has allowed me to be afflicted that I might know him and his word. I gave this same sermon one day in a church where I knew a gentleman sitting about three rows back was going through cancer treatment for colon cancer. And I knew a gentleman sitting on the other side of the room over here was going through a legal battle. He was being accused of a crime that I don't think he he ever committed. He believed he did not commit it. Kind of a entangled legal issue. But he was being severely persecuted for it and trying to prove his innocence. And then to read those verses and says, God, in your faithfulness, you have afflicted us that we might learn your word in you. What I'd like to do in the few minutes we have left to look at Psalm 119 is look at three aspects of it. And we're going to look at just three verses. We're not going to spend two minutes on every verse, I promise. We're going to look at three verses. I'd like you to turn to the 12th stanza, which is verse 89. If you have your Bible there, turn to verse 89. 
It says, forever, O Lord. I'm reading from the RSV. I'm not sure what translation you have. The RSV is very similar to the new ESV. It says, forever, O Lord, thy word is firmly fixed in the heavens. The NIV says, thy word is eternal. But what we see in, in all of the stanzas of this psalm, and primarily in this one, is we see the attributes of God's word. So verses 89 through 96, we see the attributes of God's word. It starts off by saying it's eternal. It ends that stanza by saying it's perfect. He says, I see no limitation or no boundaries of its perfection. And in the middle of that stanza and other places, it says it's faithful, it's trustworthy, it's true. And the interesting thing is that gave the writer hope. And one of the themes throughout this is the hope. The word hope appears about eight or nine times in the psalm. That he found hope in God's word because God's word was faithful and true just like God is. If God is trustworthy, his word has to be trustworthy because his word is a reflection of who he is. So when he makes a promise that's in God's word, he, by his character, must and will, has to fulfill it. Always. Because he is always faithful. Let's turn to the next stanza. Starting in verse 97. And here we see the writer's attitude towards God's word. Verse 97 says, Oh, how I love thy law. It is my meditation all the day. Kind of a little bit like Psalm 1 we, re- we saw. But he says, Oh, how I love thy law. Another phrase he uses often in Psalm 119 is, I take delight in thy word. He said he longs for it. He's in awe of it. He rejoices in it. He's humble before it. He's wholehearted towards it. Right in the same stanza, verse 101, I, I hold back my feet from every evil way in order that I might keep thy word. So he stays away from anything else. He's focused wholeheartedly on God's word. The interesting thing, too, is the result of that. In verse 98 of that stanza, it says, Thy commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Now, in a college environment, isn't that an interesting statement? He says, I have more understanding than all my teachers, for thy testimonies are my meditation. Then he goes on to say, in verse 100, I understand more than the aged, for I keep thy precepts. He says, because of his devotion to God's word, and I have to add another statement here. Look at verse 102. I do not turn aside for my ordinances. Why? In my translation it says, for thou hast taught me. 
He says he's wiser than his enemies because he's not learning from his enemies. He says, I'm wiser than my teachers because, yes, they're teaching me, but not, I'm not learning solely from them. I'm wiser than the elders because even though I'm learning from them, I'm not learning solely from them. Who is he learning from? God himself. He says, for thou, O God, you have taught me. How does God do that? Through his word. He says, therefore, I'm wiser than my enemies. I'm wiser than my teachers. I'm wiser than my elders. Because he's been taught by God. Lastly, let's look at the next stanza. 105, it says, Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Now, this could be used as an attribute of God's word, that it gives light, it gives guidance, it gives direction, and that's true. But the interesting thing here is the connotation is that the writer is saying, I have made thy word a lamp to my feet. I have made your word a light to my path. I think of this in two ways. He says, a lamp to my feet, and that's kind of like, okay, what do I do next, Lord? Where do I put my foot? Where, 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 what's, what am I doing today? But also, he says, it's a light to my path, and, it's, and it points out to the future. It illuminates the path ahead. What is my life going to be about? What's going to be the end of my life? What is the legacy I'm going to leave as a follower of Jesus Christ? And God's word will provide that. It will illuminate that in our lives. Andy Stanley has written a great book called The Principle of the Path. I've decided after reading that that every high school graduation I go to, every college graduation I go to, that's going to be my gift. I wish I would have read it when I was 18, 19, 20 years old. Of course, Andy Stanley wasn't around then, but called the principle of the path. God's path. This is not a summary of his book per se, and I would encourage you to read his book. But God's path, if we follow it like this writer is doing, his purposes will be fulfilled in our life. God's purposes will be fulfilled. His priorities firmly established, and his prosperity will be experienced. Let me say that again in a slightly different order. His priorities will be established in our life, his purposes fulfilled, and his prosperity experienced. Now, the result of that in our life is life itself and joy. Throughout this psalm, he says, thy word has been my life. And he closes this stanza in verse 111, saying, thy testimonies are my heritage forever, yea, they are the joy of my heart. And the implication there, and especially as you read through the whole psalm, is that the word has become, God's word has become his heritage. And the the Hebrew word there is used only one other place in the whole Old Testament. And, it, and it's all-encompassing. It's his past, his present, his future. It's his identity. It's his life. That's how he describes God's word. And he says, it's become the joy of my heart.
What I'd like to do is share one other verse, and then we'll leave Psalm 119. But the verse is actually towards the close of Deuteronomy. And I, I'll, let me just read this to you instead of going there. At the end of the life of Moses, at the end of his life, he gives his closing sermon. And that's basically the book of Deuteronomy. Moses' final word to the people of Israel before he dies and before Joshua leads them across the the Jordan into the promised land. And these are some of the final words of Moses, maybe the final words. He says in chapter 32, 46 and 47, chapter 32, verses 46 and 47, he says, Lay to heart all the words I enjoin upon you this day, that you may command them to your children, and that they may be careful to do all the words of this law. Then he says something very interesting. He says, for it is no trifle for you, but it is your life. And thereby you shall live long in the land which the Lord has given you. It is no trifle for you, but it is your life. Now, what I would encourage you to do sometime, because we're going to, I got to close here pretty quickly. Are we going to miss kickoff? No, not Take a sheet of paper sometime. Divide it in four parts, whether up or down or crossways, whatever, and label the four parts these things, three of which we've already talked about. The attributes of God's word, the attitude I should have for it, the action I should take, and the effect it will have in my life. Read through this psalm and indicate in, in your, those four different areas what attribute of God am I seeing here in God's word, through God's word? What, what's the attributes? What should my attitude be towards the, the word? What should my action be? And what effect will that have in my life? Those four things. And just make notes in one of those categories as you go through. I guarantee you it will change your life to do that. Let me tell you, in closing, a story. Because if you're like me, and you don't want to be just, how do I want to say this? You don't want to be in that 55% of mature believers who aren't spending regular time in God's Word, because now you see the priority of it. You see, you've seen Psalm 1, you've seen Psalm 19, you've seen Psalm 119, and you say, boy, this should be a priority in my life. This is the tool that God has given me to reveal himself and to have a relationship with me. And this is where I can meet him and hear his voice via the Holy Spirit that lives within me. I can fulfill what Jesus said when he says, chose 12 to be with him. If you want that, you might struggle just like I did early on in my Christian life because Fortunately, being around the people I was around, I developed some strong convictions. I should be doing that. But yet I struggled with that. I remember meeting a guy. His name was Morgan Myers. He was a pharmacist up in Ashland. And he was a kind of a workshop leader or speaker at a conference I went to as a fairly young believer. And I was just really impressed. One of those guys you just you meet and you say, this is one of the godliest people I've ever met. 
and he had that impact on me. And so I remember grabbing him after one of the sessions, and we walked to the dining hall. And this was at a church camp, and so we had to walk through the woods to get there and kind of stuff. And, and, I, said, and I said to him, Morgan, and I appreciate what you're saying, but how do you do that? How do you do that? I said, I struggle with just the consistency of that and having the heart for it day in and day out and stuff. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, Galen, he says, I used to struggle with that too. And he said, then I just came to a point where I said, I gave God permission that when he wanted to spend time with me, that he would wake me up and do that. And I said, what does that mean? He said, well, you know, the interesting is it played out, you know, sometimes he was a pharmacist. He owned three uh, drugstores back in those days. And he had to be at one of them to open up at 8 o'clock or try to be there about 7.30 to open up at 8 o'clock. And he says, well, if God doesn't wake me up until about 6.30, he says, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time because I got to get out the door and get there. And But if God wakes me up at 5 o'clock, you know, I got maybe an hour or two to spend with him. Or if he wakes me up at 3 o'clock, I got a whole lot of time to spend with him. He says, I put that burden on God. My, my, but my promise was that whenever God woke me up, I'd spend time with him. And I looked at him and I said, I don't know if I remember saying this, but I thought, I went, yeah, right. You know, in my mind, I just really didn't quite compute. It was probably 10 years later, close, somewhere between 5 to 10 years later, I was in my career as an insurance agent, living on commission, went through a pretty dry spell and was really struggling, waking up in the middle of the night, tossing and turning, trying to figure out life and how I was going to do this and that and the income and a whole bit and the family. And, and I'd lay there and toss and turn for, seemed like hours in the middle of the night. And those words of Morgan Myers came back to me. And I said, okay, God, maybe you're in this. Maybe you're waking me up for a different reason than me worrying. So I made a promise. I said, God, whenever you wake me up, I'll get out of bed, go open your word, and spend time with you. I made that promise. The anxiety went away. But God gave me a really wonderful gift. Gave me the gift of insomnia. I cannot sleep for more than three or four hours at a time, usually. I mean, most of the time. But you know, when I wake up, sometimes it's 2 o'clock in the morning, or 3, or whatever. You know, I've got a choice to make, but you know, I see it as God's, my opportunity to spend time with God and Him doing it. Sometimes it's 15 minutes and I get drowsy and I'll go back to bed. Sometimes it's an hour, sometimes it's the rest of the night. But one thing I found is that at, say, 2 o'clock in the morning, the house is really pretty quiet. And it's just me and God. Of course, the dog is kind of laying there somewhere. And, and sometimes I'll make a cup of coffee, sometimes I won't. But when I started doing that, it changed my life dramatically. Every night, spending time with God. Now, I don't know how he's going to do that in your life. That's my story. But I do know, without a shadow of a doubt, God wants to do something like that in your life if he hasn't already. Because that's who he is. He wants to spend time with you. He's redeemed you to have a relationship with him. And I guarantee you, 
his primary tool to do that, that his Holy Spirit uses, is in this book or iPad. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time together we've had. Lord, I just pray that everyone here this morning, if they're not already, they would see the priority of God's, your word. Because it's your way of drawing us close to you, teaching us, instructing us, guiding us, and loving us, Lord. So I just ask that would be true in all of our lives. Amen. I'm going to ask the gentleman in the back to pull up a slide. I brought a card along that I've printed up. They're at their informational table. This quote from John Wesley has inspired me a lot. It says, I'm a creature of the day, passing through life as an arrow through the air. I'm a spirit from God, returning to God. God himself condescended to teach me the way. He hath written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book. At any price, give me the book of God. I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be homo unis libri, or man of one book. I sit down alone. Only God is here. In his presence, I open. I read his book. May you be a person of one book. Thank you.